Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Dino, Dino, Dino. Isn't it exciting? It's another Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham, and this week we've gone to Jurassic Measures to bring you our latest episode on Fallen Kingdom. Joining me to ask whether this is a roaring success or a reptile dysfunction, from Film 4 and One Room with a View, it's Stephosaurus Watts. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and... After what feels as long as the gap between the Triassic and the Cretaceous period, he has returned. It's Velociraptor Hewitt. Oh, hello, Jake. Thank you for that. How are you doing? Much better now yeah. after that intro. Yeah, good. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And it's not just us talking about it. We've got the writer of the film, Colin Trevorrow. He directed the first one. He's back this time around. And I sat down with him to chat all things Jurassic as well. So uh, let's get a bit of background on this film. Uh, a little thing called Jurassic Park came out a good 20 years ago now and kind of changed the landscape of film as we know it. Uh, and then a few years back, Colin Trevorrow came in and was tasked with rebooting that world. Uh, and just want to get your opinion, guys, on how you felt around that idea of going back into the Jurassic universe a few years ago. And then maybe I'll hype for this one now. Steph? I think, well, because it's obviously been like 15 years between the last Jurassic Park, so Jurassic Park 3, and then the Jurassic World one. So um, I guess with Jurassic World, it felt quite like a kind of reboot. So quite kind of similar to Jurassic Park. And mm. they kind of enter the park and then obviously everything goes wrong. This, this like reboot will. Uh, like yeah. the Force Awakens is kind of doing as well that you're yeah. bringing in the new cast but you've got elements of the old so you're getting the older audiences to feel a bit comfortable but you can bring it into a new generation as well exactly like, I remember watching the first one in the cinema it's one of the first films I remember seeing it's not the first one but it's one of the first I was like seven and obsessed with dinosaurs and I remember sitting between my mum and dad and the the scene where they ch the T-Rex is chasing the truck and Goldblum's hanging off the back I was stood on my chair manically laughing with fear, just like, <laughs> <laughs> terrified out of my skin. And so coming into Jurassic World, I was going, the first one, I was coming in for like the nostalgia kick. Mm. It's like, this is back. This is when I was a kid. Jurassic World 2, Fallen Kingdom, I think I was a little apprehensive. So I was like, I think I've had my nostalgia kick. So what What am I going into this one for? Am I just, am I just along for the ride now mm. forever? 
or am I going to get a little bit of that rush again? Yeah. And I think what you said uh, at the very start there about Jurassic Park being one of the first films you saw in the cinema, that sentence has been said so much around the time of that film. Um, I think so many of us uh, were shown that film as a first film or at least a defining film in our childhood. So many parents took their kids to see that or people snuck out to that. Uh, I think in the 90s that was just such a humongous event. It was the must-see, wasn't it? Exactly. And then it's no surprise that the that generation who were kids then give it 20 years they've got their own children and they want to relive that and share that awe that they had at the first time that they saw jurassic park and i think that was the role that jurassic world had it was just to kind of steady it steady the ship really in the same way that force awakens had lost world and uh jurassic park 3 were big letdowns that's well known and i think Jurassic World did its job perfectly. It's not a perfect film, but for the film it was required to be, it executed it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it was it was the throwback that we wanted. And it just like you say, like The Force Awakens, it satisfied the older fans and it didn't mess too much with the mythology of the th- of everything. But it did a decent job of introducing the new breed. Mm. Mm. And so uh, Jurassic World, the in that film, in case you don't remember, uh, that involved the park for the very first time actually being open. Uh, it was renamed. Was it? It was Jurassic World was the name of the park. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we actually saw what the thing that we had been teased for three films would actually work like. Surprisingly, An Island Full of Dinosaurs ended in disaster <laughs> and death and destruction <laughs> And that's really the extent of that film. Uh, and it just needed to reestablish the danger of maybe genetically breeding dinosaurs. <laughs> um, but in the last few years, uh, I said that in the, I mean, it's only been a few years. <laughs> um, but that film did actually, it had a strange critical trajectory in that the posters and trailers came out. And I remember everyone saying, oh, this looks lame. This looks so, so yeah. bad. I don't want to see a man riding a motorbike with raptors through a forest. It all looks really cheap <laughs> yeah, and rubbish. Yeah. yeah, people looked, yeah. Um, people were not into it at all. Uh, and then suddenly it comes out, becomes the biggest box office weekend of all time and actually gets good reviews. Uh, people are really into it. They kind of just say, like, it reinvigorated that awe that I had with the first one. It's not as good, but it's going to... Uh, It's going to be entertainment for two hours and it does it on a big scale. And since that point, it feels like everyone's forgotten those reviews as well. And that now Jurassic World is the the film that everyone can lay into. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, though, because I definitely got really swept up in the kind of in the nostalgic aspect, Mm. in that kind of thing of you get to see this huge world on a big screen and I was really swept up in that kind of excitement when I went to see it. And then I think later on, I was like, oh, actually, maybe it wasn't as good. I, I like had a good time, but maybe it didn't like stick with me as much as it should have. So maybe it's just kind of people realising now, a couple of years later, like, oh, maybe it wasn't actually as good mm. as like the time I had watching it in yeah. the first place. Definitely. I think yeah. that's very true. And nostalgia is kind of a fleeting feeling isn't it and once that fades it's all objective and ugh. yeah and it's, i mean it's all right. yeah like the 
the first Jurassic Park film I saw in the cinema was Jurassic Park 3. So I never had that like big Jurassic Park 1 mm, experience. Yeah, yeah. So I was like really excited to see this kind of whole world again. Yeah. Um, like kind of rebooted from the start. But yeah. I think the third one's all right. I think it's too much a of a, a hard time. <laughs> I was saying to Steph before I came in that that was, I remember a time where my brother just turned up at our house with two totally legitimate videotapes <laughs> <laughs> that were extremely high definition. Uh, one of them was Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire one, and the other was Jurassic Park 3 and just rinsing those. Was that the same time? I don't know, he just oh. turned up with the tapes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, right, so that's uh, that's a bit of background on Jurassic World and where we've caught up to with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. In the director's chair this time, we've got J.A. Biona, who directed The Orphanage, uh, The Impossible, and A Monster Calls. And Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly remain as the writers. So uh, I sat down with Colin Trevorrow to talk about uh, taking Jurassic World into the Fallen Kingdom. Uh, we're delighted to welcome Colin Trevorrow onto the Curzon Film Podcast to talk about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. How you doing? How you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, so a while ago when you were making your little time travel indie film, uh, I imagine at that time you were thinking, because six years later, I'll definitely be doing my second round of press for the Jurassic Park films. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I never, uh, not that I didn't have any intention to direct movies like this. I absolutely did. But I, I couldn't have imagined that... Uh, in such a short period of time, uh, not only would I uh, have been involved with two of them, but I would have had the opportunity to collaborate with a director who I was a huge fan of uh, when I was making Safety yeah. Not Guaranteed. You know, The Impossible uh, came out you know, right when that movie did. So we were at uh, film festivals together, J.A. and I. We were at Sitges, which is where we met. Uh, and so there's a, there's a bit of like a fanboy joy for me in, in getting to do this right now. And so uh, Jurassic World, your film that came out uh, a few years ago now, knowing at the time of release what your next few years looked like, how did you figure at that point what your involvement in Fallen Kingdom would be? Uh, I didn't, uh, it wasn't in the context of, of my plans. It was in the context of what I felt was best for the franchise. And I, I, I take that responsibility very seriously, and I, I did then uh, too, and I, I felt like I... I had a good understanding of what I felt uh, had maybe brought some diminishing returns in the in the previous Jurassic trilogy uh, when it comes to uh, making sure that it was a character-based franchise and people that we are following from film to film, and it felt like those movies relied more on, well, which new dinosaurs are going to be in it and who are they going to eat? And that, that can get you so far. Uh, but I really wanted this one to be about, well, what's going to happen to these people next? Uh, and, and how are they going to survive something that is a, a, a rapidly growing uh, you know, disastrous situation, as, as you've seen now? Uh, so uh, another thing uh, that I, I thought was important was that you know the next film have a very different voice uh, visually. Yeah. Well, as much as the impossible and a monster calls have brought him the acclaim he deserves, uh, the orphanage remains my favourite of Juan Antonio's films, and I think his knowledge of the horror genre really comes through in in the new film. Uh, was that that horror knowledge of his something that you wanted to bring in the script from the get go? Uh, it was, and, and it was in the script uh, from the very beginning, and. Uh, Partially because it's it's where I I felt uh, the franchise needed to go uh, because there were uh, there were some things that I I didn't 
get to do in the first movie. And the movie didn't have that kind of really intense you know, child traumatizing suspense that Jurassic <laughs> Park had uh, and that terror. Uh, and, and that was intentional. But uh, I also knew that the second film had the opportunity to go there because uh, – you know, these kids are getting older and, you know, we, they can grow with us. And uh, so, you know, those, those scenes were written. I, I did write a scene of, uh, you know, that monster under the bed, monster in the closet scene of, of, of uh, that creature coming into a small child's room. And, and but I wrote it because I knew Jay Bayona would execute it visually uh, in, a, in a really yeah. indelible and brilliant well, way. You've got the horror elements from the orphanage. You've got the complete destruction from the impossible. And you've mm-hmm. got the the childhood nostalgia like bedrooms from A Monster Calls. It really feels like a perfect collaboration between the two of you. Yeah, and, and what it represents is a writer who's looking uh, to design a movie for uh, a director who he's a huge fan of. Uh, and yeah, I made a hybrid of his, his three movies with dinosaurs. <laughs> And it's interesting uh, to hear you talk about the, the future of this series, because I think a lot of the time, maybe blockbusters, particularly ones looking for franchises, seem to run before they can walk. And maybe I think you established with Jurassic World uh, first a base of what to build from rather than completely looking forward. And now you've got that opportunity to start expanding. Yeah, that was the intention. And whenever I would read comments about the how the simplicity of Jurassic World, uh, I agree, uh, and and that was its intention. Uh, you know that the movie uh, is a very classically structured American blockbuster uh, that uh, does have familial elements within it, does have uh, wish fulfillment, uh, has romance, has adventure. It's all of those pieces. Uh, the second film uh, is. Something that you know results from uh, me having watched a lot of trilogies in my <laughs> lifetime, and 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 having my own opinions uh, about the best way to uh, to move something forward, uh, and and allowing it to be more you know emotionally complex and to address you know issues that feel relevant in the world today, and uh, without becoming too preachy or, mm. or making it into a message film, and and I believe we've struck that balance. I'm I think collaborating with Bayona uh, and with Derek Connolly uh, and with Stephen and Frank. Uh, it's it's allowed there to uh, to be a real balance uh, mm. in the way that this film uh, plays out. Yeah. Uh, so a central part of both Jurassic Park and Jurassic World is the setting of uh, Isla Nublar. And um, when the films have come off of that island in the past, they've maybe lost a little bit of their charm. Mm. Uh, and in Fallen Kingdom... Uh, you don't even leave the island. You just lay waste to the island. We <laughs> but respectfully and yeah. with reverence. <laughs> um, uh, you take it to uh, take to the mainland. It's a very different setting. Uh, was it quite cathartic in an odd way to, to write your own Jurassic World destruction? It was, in, but not in a gleeful way. Uh, you know, I, I saw it like we were, we were uh, killing a character. You know, I mean, that island is, is as much a character as any of the dinosaurs or the humans. And so uh, when we talked about how to do it, uh, both in the writing stage and then with Bayano, uh, to, in my mind, you know, the image that I saw as far as where it would go, where how it felt emotionally was was burning down a, a church or a temple uh, or, or something that, that carries great uh, emotional and, and spiritual weight for the people uh, involved. Uh, so and that's and that's how it's executed. It's a very spiritual uh, moment uh, when when that really finally happened. It's also obviously mixed in with a ton of action, but when it 
in, in its final moments, uh, you know, when that boat is leaving the island, yeah. uh, I thought that what J.A. did visually in that in that sequence was beautiful, and uh, and I, I really like that the movie just takes a moment to recognize the weight of of what we're doing because we, we we take it very seriously. We don't uh, we don't want to treat that lightly. And what's that? What's the risks that you found at the writing stage of having to think about bringing dinosaurs into the mainland? Yeah, and that's you know we we don't entirely deal with the consequences and the reality of what those creatures in the real world um, would represent uh, in this film we we, uh, we may in the future mm. uh, stay tuned <laughs> but I you know I approach it both in this uh, and in, and in what we're working on in the same way that you know alien invasion films that we love that uh, grounded in the human experience you know Stevens War of the Worlds film I think Contact uh, with Robert Zemeckis uh, any t- and I think Planet of the Apes did it beautifully as well, and, and we're going in a different direction than that movie. But uh, I think that being able to to link you know the existence of dinosaurs on the planet to our relationship with animals on the planet now, and how many different capacities we have those relationships. Mm-hmm. They're in zoos, they're out in the wild. They'll kill you if you go into their territory. We have them as pets. We use them in agriculture. We use them in military. Uh, we use them in in biopharmaceutical use. We use them. In medicine that relationship runs so deep there's so many opportunities yeah. uh to explore what might happen yeah uh, and it i think a few times in fallen kingdom the dinosaurs are referred to just as animals mm-hmm. and i think part of the goal of the film is to really connect with them not as a part of a theme park yeah that's me that animal thing i call them animals all the time and it's it's very important to me uh that uh, by the time you get to the end, it's not that we're saying dinosaurs are heroes or villains. We're saying they're alive, mm-hmm. and and you know there there are lines even in Jurassic World that I think probably at the time you know may have just sort of you know it was water off the back of that scene. But you know when Chris Pratt says to Bryce Dallas Howard, you, know, you see these things as as numbers on a spreadsheet, but they're not. They're alive. That's really the, what we're mm-hmm. saying is you know we've created living creatures that we now have a responsibility to. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of blockbusters have maybe received some flack after enormous unaccounted for destruction. Uh, was that part <laughs> of why you wanted to take the stakes to somewhere a bit different, take some somewhere remote? Well, I, I found that the destruction in this film is very well accounted for. Mm. Uh, and that was important to us that you know we begin the movie by debating the question of it and its consequences. Uh, we then show the consequences of of of, uh, of refugee animals. Uh, that uh, no longer have a home and are being taken advantage of, and and in this case, you know, bought and sold. Uh, and you know, again, I, I I'm very careful in the way I talk about it because I don't want uh, people to feel like they're coming to this movie to uh, to be messaged to or 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 educated about the state of the world. But I do feel like it. You know, there's an opportunity for us to have some of those conversations. Mm. You're directing the next Jurassic World film. Uh, is there anything from seeing Fallen Kingdom and uh, Juan Antonio's take on the Jurassic universe that you know you now want to bring in that you maybe had never thought of before? It's hard to answer because I never really got to see Fallen Kingdom. I've been <laughs> I've been involved the entire time, so like I've I've seen the movie you know a hundred times. Uh, but I can I can tell you that uh, being able to watch Bayona's 
process of directing uh, and and how he approaches filmmaking and it's different for every filmmaker uh, and and listening to him and and really as opposed to uh, trying to get him to make the film I would have made to recognize uh, which I did from the very beginning uh, that it's my job here is to enable him to make the film that he wants to make uh, even if he's doing it based on our our script Uh, and so I I tried to empower his vision and support him uh, and and every bit you know be the producer that uh, I think he deserves. And have you got any uh, titles floating around for the next one? I'm not going to tell you that. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Colin Trevorrow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, so that was uh, myself and Colin Trevara. I just want to take a moment to say how nice he was you wouldn't hear it in the interview but uh, a few minutes into that my microphone it just went berserk on me what it just let you down it yeah just, just like just went on the fritz like battery was there space was there absolutely fine but uh i saw it happen so i could pause it there and rather than thinking well we've got a three minute interview uh he actually just said hey man i'm gonna bat for you don't worry and he just got up out of his seat went out to the pr people and said this chap's having trouble with his microphone. Can you give him 15 minutes? Why don't you send in the next guy and let this guy come back in a bit? Oh, wow. Nice man. Yeah, and I still managed to mess up his name at the end, even even after he corrected me twice after doing two interviews. Yeah, Um, but he was was really, really lovely. Um, But let's talk about this film that he's written, shall we? Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. First reactions, Ryan? First reaction to the film, Walking Out, was that was bonkers pure bonkers absolute everything dialed up everything was completely just off the charts crazy and if you're prepared to ride along with that you're going to have an absolute whale of a time which i did have a great time Mm. but yeah it is nuts yes uh i was really surprised how much of a good time i actually had in the film i was um yeah really questioning what role it should have i wasn't really into the super commercialization of jurassic world i think a lot of the stuff that it was trying to do uh in the acknowledgement of franchising and materialization of jurassic world as a brand that they tried to fit into the film the like the character that jake johnson had who had like a vintage jurassic park t-shirt and it's like what are we going to call it indominus rex brought to you by at&t or something um and they were trying to like do a wink at that and acknowledge hey we're a multi-billion dollar franchise but we get it right um 
And I think that stuff was funny at the time, but has soured really quickly. And so this, I was actually not really into the brand idea of it. The like Going on the Wikipedia of this film, there's a whole section about brand collaborations. So bizarre. Like They made a big point of all the different companies that they've collaborated with across all different markets. I'm going into this thinking this feels like a film made by committee. Um, yeah. And actually what's come out of it is, to me, the most J.A. Biona, the director of the orphanage, J.A. Biona film since that film. I, I was really pleasantly surprised, particularly in the final act of it, where he really goes down almost into a dinosaur slasher film, exactly the risks that were being taken. I think it it has to take a big risk at the start of the film where they blow up the island to transport it to a much smaller location. And we'll get into this later, this idea about this uh, this smaller ending. Uh, but I think there are some big risks that are made in this film. And for me, a lot of it didn't work. But the <laughs> the kind of I the overall ambition of it, and when I saw what the like the actual identity and craft of that director coming through, I was really happy to go along for the ride. Yeah, I think well, what you said kind of went, once they actually blow up the island, mm. it's like okay, where is this actually going? And like, felt like I couldn't predict what was going to happen mm. next, which was quite a pleasant surprise. And it was actually like I was along for the ride at that point because it's kind of it's taking them literally somewhere different. Yeah. Well, I think this is the I mentioned this in the interview. This is where the other films have struggled when they've tried to take away the island. Uh, and I've always thought like that's what makes it unique, that it's self-contained. Uh, as with any horror film, if you can contain everyone, they can yeah. never escape. And that's what makes it, uh, gives it that terror. And so, well, let's take it back. Let's take it back to why is the island being destroyed? Just to give people a bit more context here. Um, so our old friends, male character and female character, uh, are no longer working at Jurassic World. Of course, I do mean Chris Pratt's Owen Grady and Bryce Dallas Howard's Claire Deering, our favourite Jurassic characters. Now, yes. um, Owen is now a handsome man building a shack. That seems to be his role in life. And Claire Deering actually uh, has seen the error of her ways from the first film. Uh, she's no longer just uh, looking for the business of dinosaurs, but she's helping them uh, into dinosaur rights, is working for a campaign to secure the rights of the dinosaurs on the island because the dormant volcano has, in fact, uh, turned out to be a live volcano. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry, everyone. We had all these scientists building these dinosaurs, but no one noticed the volcano was actually active. Um, and the, the volcano is blowing up and all the dinosaurs are getting killed. Uh, and they are tasked with going to the island to rescue them uh, and bring them back to Sir Benjamin Lockwood, who is James Cromwell's character. And Benjamin Lockwood was the partner of John Hammond, uh, who obviously started Jurassic Park. And so it's quite an, a nice, endearing uh, story about saving the dinosaurs. But that is not what it seems, is it, right? All is not what it seems. <laughs> no, nothing's what it seems. It's, it's, it follows a similar trajectory to The Lost World, almost beat for beat in a way, in that you start on this island with these big game hunters who are trying to capture the dinosaurs, and they've lured in Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard's characters to help them wrangle all of the species, the specimens. And then they've got 
obviously got awful plans for them, bad guys all round, and they're going to take them off the island and then they're going to put them in this like kind of residential setting and it's going to all go balmy. Mm. I think that the decision to destroy the island is a pretty bold statement of intent and it's yeah. like you were saying about how it's they've they've done the nostalgia fix then this film is kind of half that it's half remember the lost world mm. remember that didn't quite work it's a bit nasty wasn't That's it it's right, a bit yeah. sinister and then we did that silly bit on san diego in san diego well we're going to destroy the island so there's absolutely no going back from this you've had your fix of remember jurassic park this is a new thing now. We so so what you're there. saying is that in sailing away, they haven't just made a shipped Rex. <laughs> is, what, is, what I'm, is what I'm hearing. That's what you're hearing me right. You're, yeah. You're, you're following, yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's the, they get to the island and then I, there, are, there are other characters. We've got uh, Justice Smith as Franklin Webb, who is the nerd character. Uh, and then you've got uh, Daniela Pineda as Dr. Zia Rodriguez, who's quite a cool scientist. And uh, so that's that's the troop who are brought in. And then you've got Ted Levine as Ken Wheatley, who is uh, the like the more of the hunter, Lost World type character yeah. as well. Uh, and so you've got the nice team of science scientists who have to go back into the destroyed park, track where all the dinos are particularly on Blue, who was uh, Owen's like uh, favourite from the first one, if you remember. And so that's really the first half of the film, is getting to the island, tracking the dinosaurs before everything blows up. And that is where we see Jay Obiona, the director of The Impossible. Yeah. Kind of disaster mm. movie direction coming into play there. Yeah. Which I thought was actually really well done. There's kind of some really quite like intense and like weirdly upsetting shots of kind of dinosaurs running away from an exploding volcano which yeah i didn't yeah didn't really expect that yeah. to happen well, because normally like it's the dinosaurs that are a threat and this mm. time kind of everybody's in it together well trevor says on the interview that he calls them animals and that's i think what this is this is going for that we are made to feel as much for the dinosaurs as we are for the people uh and i think coming out of this film my favorite moments uh are with the dinosaurs and I think everyone's going to agree with that and that's why everyone's favourite bits are from Jurassic Park as well and he really inst leans into using the dinosaurs as characters yeah, not just as a uh, a vessel for a set piece or something and that's the, so yeah as you say this volcano coming down there's this lava trickling and yes you've got lovely Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard running away from it and they're in their sphere thing but you're really worried about that Stegosaurus getting its foot trapped in lava, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. And I think as well, because there's... I noticed there's kind of a few, like, references back to Jurassic Park throughout um, that I think maybe helps with that. So the first kind of... I can't remember what the, like, big long-necked dinosaur is called. Like, yeah. Brachio, Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, that first kind of reveal of that um, when they all kind of get out the car mm. and it walks past is, yeah, very similar to that first reveal when Laura Dern's like mm. looking out the car in Jurassic Park. But obviously it's kind of in this destroyed park. Yes. Um, I thought it's kind of bits and pieces like that really helped with that kind of sympathising mm. with the dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, and I actually, for me, although like we've said, like this destroying the island is a real risk because uh, of uh, how we feel about that island as a space and how that contributes to this series... 
weirdly enough, during this film, in the in these two halves on and off the island, I found the, the stuff on the island was actually where I, it got more bogged down. And eventually, when it left it, that was when I was a lot more into the film. And going back to what you said about that, the long, the Brachiosaurus mm-hmm. and that moment of awe uh, that the Laura Dern character has uh, with that gift that we see every day. Uh, that this film, I think, is divided into two ideas in terms of representations of the dinosaurs and what they can mean. And to me, those two representations are awe and wonder that the Brachiosaurus have and then the kitchen scene and the knocking on the door. And that is, those two moments are split down the middle of this one. We're looking in the first half with so much love for these creatures. There's a particular bit with the ship sailing away off of the island, and it's one of those brachiosaurus, and it's just a silhouette. You can barely see it, and you just know that the smoke's coming and the lava's coming. And this guy's wonderful, and he's probably a vegetarian as well. Yeah. And uh, he's got no beef with anyone. And to us, he is the same one that Laura Dern saw. And we're just seeing him kind of shudder and shake, and then he's gone. And then we know the island's over. And that's, it feels really definitive and strangely emotional. Yeah, it does feel very final when it goes. We've, we've seen it come back time and time again. Yeah. You know, this is like the fifth time that it's somehow life has found a way mm. this one does have a greater poignancy to it mm. and like you say the, the two halves of this film are so markedly different from one another but the first film kind of did uh, lots in the in the wide open spaces and green pastures and big jungle and then it quite easily pivoted into like stainless steel kitchen areas it all felt like one place mm. this is sort of following a similar idea of going into a local like small isolated location but it's so so separate yeah it's a different film it's a different pace it's a different kind of horror Mm. so let's get into that film dropped in in a few scenes earlier in the film we've got uh rafe spall who is uh benjamin lockwood's uh assistant and then toby jones as gunner eversoll who is this uh wonderful creation and toby jones is really having the time of his life and they come in to really into effect in the second half of the film because all of these dinosaurs are taken from the island to the lockwood estate which is this big country home and that is where the rest of the action happens once again as we have learned five times uh, (laughs) if you lock lots of dinosaurs into the same place eventually bad things might happen and that is indeed what happens. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there is some brutal kills, I'll, I'll say. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, there is some it's really satisfying as, kills. It's not as gory as the first three films, though. There's a little bit more looking away. Some mm. like particular character, key character loses an arm. And you don't see it quite like I, you I would have seen it in The Lost World. No. The Lost World is a particularly vicious film. Mm. That's really sadistic, I think. Yeah. Whereas this is much more sanitized. It is. Um, I think Fiona really goes for uh, what you don't see and like really amps up the shadow play that we saw from the first one as well. Whereas like that was just hints of Spielberg just having some fun with the shadows yeah. and the terror of just knowing what the shape of a dinosaur looks like. Uh, I think he uses that technique like maybe four or five times in this final act. And I, 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 even though it's gimmicky and it's cheap, yeah, uh, 
that's it's actually really effective. And this is going back to what I was saying about this idea of the awe and wonder of the dinosaurs and the terror of the dinosaurs. When you look at the animatronics in that first Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs that they could make, I think it goes all the way back to Jaws in that the actual thing itself, if you give up too much time, it's not going to be that scary. Yeah. And Spielberg's taken that to Jurassic Park and the most memorable bits of the dinosaur like those those little bits where it's just a hand well it's not a hand is it it's a claw like or a an head. enormous claw yeah. yeah and those bits are actually where you you wield the terror from yeah and Bernard knows that and this is why I think he's gone small for this final act so he's destroyed the island that's your big number and then we're taken to a little estate in the woods because that kitchen in Jurassic Park is one of the best bits. And looking at Jurassic World, which went for all-out destruction, I think we've we've reached saturation point with yeah. that with blockbusters now. And going a few summers back to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which was great for going really small for its finale, and I think really worked. And he's done that here, and as I said at the very beginning, he's turned it into a bit of a slasher. You've suddenly got... 12 dinos locked in a giant house probably about 30 people and the only thing people can do as with any Jurassic film is run is run and try and hide yeah, yeah. I mean he you're right Bayana uses so many like gothic techniques mm. in this last act where there's all silhouettes and instead of candles it'll be like a, fl a flash of lightning mm. and you just get a little glimpse of a snout mm. from something like an indoraptor or whatever they're called and um, even things like he even manages to orchestrate a dinosaur coming through a bedroom window yes. which is like obviously classic gothic yeah. stuff someone's hiding well, a little girl in a bed, bed. And it creeps in through the window almost silently and then looms over the bed. But this is like an enormous, this is like a dinosaur as big as an elephant or mm. something. And it kind of tiptoes in. It's completely like like nuts. This is one of the nuts things. You have to suspend disbelief more than I can remember having to do that in anything. Mm -hmm. But it does, it wraps it up and it really commits to their gothic aesthetic. Yeah. And uh, this, again, this uh, going back to this idea of Beona's filmographies all combining. Here, we go from that disaster of the impossible into this horror element. And the childhood bedroom that we see in this film of the uh, Benjamin Lockwood's granddaughter is straight out of Monster Calls as well. Mm. And this idea of the absolute terror of in that film, the kind of metaphor of death and grief, creeping into a really safe space. Yeah. That dinosaur creeping through the window in what should be a really lovely, warm childhood room is utterly terrifying. Yeah. All of that kind of design of the house as well, it does kind of fit that gothic. It's very kind of like Nosferatu-like yeah. with the kind of shadows coming up the walls mm. and he's kind of looming over a bed and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's definitely some of the strongest parts when you just have the focus on kind of like claws or teeth. I think because a lot, they've definitely gone bigger with the dinosaurs in these ones i was reading about um so spielberg really wanted some like particular dinosaurs for like jurassic park one and two but he didn't have the money to actually make them um so i think well obviously like as they've got bigger budgets they can make like bigger 
bigger dinosaurs mm. and stuff like that. So, um, but I think sometimes that gets a bit lost if like a big dinosaur is just like chomping somebody. It's, yeah. it's less kind of horrible. It's quite quick. But yeah. when it's focusing in on those like little things, yeah, all the shadows and mm. yeah, things that you kind of think, oh, that would actually really hurt if like yeah. if yeah, I yeah. got a claw in the leg well, or something like think, that. As much as seeing a massive dinosaur is brilliant, it's actually t- it's quite hard to put a big dinosaur and a normal sized human in the same frame and actually make their th- the threat connect between them. Mm-hmm. And in this, the the dinosaurs themselves are quite small they're all they're raptors really the the biggest threat is raptor sized dinosaur mm. fairly small and actually so you can pin them as a direct threat to an individual person yeah 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 it's very much hunter prey and it's one on one thing mm. like you said with the stalker feel the only thing that's a bit there, there's a they're just juggernauts though mm. these things aren't they like whereas in a in a nosferatu or something you might have a long corridor yes. in the state mm. and and he, and just as someone gets around the corner running away, he comes around the other yeah. corner. You just get glimpses, whereas these things are just barreling down yeah. corridors, smashing into stuff. They're really kind of clumsy and heat-seeking killing mm. machines. And it's it's kind of incongruous to the setting, which is but because he commits to it so much mm. and because he's just not, Bayona's just not interested in does this make any sense? Is there a logic here? Like, who cares if there's a logic here? Yeah. You, by this point, you know these dinosaurs are out to get you. Yeah. You've, we've been through this. You know this is real, this is like end game for everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's just in your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I was iffy on the film and kind of what it was going for for a long time, but it was just once it got to that setting, then I was into it. I, it it, re, it as you say, it brought it home. Yeah, and that's that's what you want, um, and I think we might have to wrap up there on Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, but it's uh it's not the only film available at the moment. You can still check out uh, Le Mans Double, which was our focus of last week's show. That's still in cinemas, and that's on Curzon Home Cinema. And if you haven't listened to the episode, do go back and listen to it. We had our very first friend of the podcast, Francois Ozon. He came on our show last year to talk about France, and he's back again this time. And if you've got any thoughts on Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, or Le Mans Double, or any of our recent releases, like Zama, for instance, do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com for next week's show. Someone got in touch uh, last week. That was uh, Mike Hardy, who said that he went and checked out Zama. He said, wow, it stays with you. The boredom, descent into madness, and humiliation of Zama is told through seemingly abstract scenes, beautifully shot, and coalescing into something approaching sense. Quite stunning. <laughs> uh, I think we're all big Zama fans in the room. Yes. I haven't, seen it. I haven't seen it. But I, I, I understand that it's a true gem. Yeah. It's fantastic. Mm. Take a, take Mike's advice. Yeah. yeah. Go see it. Cheers, Do Mike. go and check out Zama. It's really, really brilliant. Um, so if you want to be like Mike and have uh, your email read out, then do get in touch. If you haven't already, do subscribe to the show. We're on iTunes and Acast. Leave us a review or maybe even a comment as well. Next week, we've got Ariasta joining us to talk about hereditary. Oh, sorry, Steph's waving her hands at that. I think you're on for next week as well. I think I, I am, yeah, yeah. You've been talking about hereditary for months. I haven't slept. That's probably <laughs> So if you want to uh, get in touch with Steph, she's on uh, at SLW Media on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Jake H. Cunningham and at Ryan Hewitt. He's not a man on Twitter. (laughs) He has been Isla Newblood. 
on social media. You can't get to him. <laughs> nah. No. All right. Well, until next time, it's been a pleasure to have you listening. It's goodbye from Steph. Goodbye. Goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>